This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. We, this week, are talking about a topic that we know causes a lot of frustration for people. We are focusing on unexplained infertility. Kate and I are catching up with Dr. James Nikopoulos, our resident expert, to get his thoughts on this diagnosis. I'm on my road trip, so this is a brief intro because um, you may well have seen our brew at two that just happened of me huddled away with a burnt nose. Dr. James has taken some time out of his very busy day just to give his expert thoughts. So James, welcome to the start of the podcast. You're normally at the end of the podcast, so it's nice to have you at the start. How are you? I feel like I've been promoted <laughs> this morning to the beginning. I'm good, thank you. Kate and I um, want to try and highlight this frustrating diagnosis of unexplained infertility. And we had a great chat with a patient who had been part of our community who shared her story. Um, she's currently kind of trying to conceive. They're heading into IVF, having had this unexplained diagnosis. And she shared how that makes her feel, which... You, everybody's going to hear after we've had our, our chat with you. But can you just give an overview of what it means, this unexplained infertility diagnosis and how people can kind of then process it? Yeah, it, I think you summed it up beautifully in that it's it's incredibly frustrating. It's frustrating for us, let alone the, the, the couples and the individuals we see, because with something as important as this, you really want to know why things are happening for your peace of mind. And also, if you've got a reason, you can try and fix it. And um, because we all, we all like to be in control and like to know where we're going. So it is incredibly frustrating. But in essence, it's, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And it basically means don't quite know why this isn't happening. And there's certain obvious things that we investigate and we want to eliminate when we're looking at a couple or an individual with subfertility. Classically, male factor remains the commonest cause around 25% of couples uh, in about 20% of couples have an intrinsic problem with ovulation. In about 15% of couples, there's a, some problem with, with tubes, tubal block uh, affecting fertility. Five or 10% of couples, there might be some other gynecological problem like endometriosis or fibroids within the uterus that might be impacting. And those are the things you want to eliminate or identify so you can fix them or improve them. And if they aren't there, what you're left with is a, is a 25 to 30% of couples who are struggling to get pregnant but we don't find a cause. And in essence, it may be that we look back in 50 years' time and think we're practicing prehistoric medicine and, and missing something blindingly obvious. But to the best of our ability now, that's where we are. It may be that some of that is to do with the fact that we're all having babies a little bit later. And because of the genetics of the eggs and the quality and the quantity, it takes a little bit longer. And that's why that group remains quite high, even though we're better at identifying other things. And it may well be something that we can't quite identify yet. There have been a few additional tests that some of us do. And, and, I, and I know you may well be talking about it later, but I'm a lot of my research in male factor fertility. And there is a subgroup of, of couples, perhaps with unexplained fertility, who may have sperm DNA problems that we haven't been able to identify in the past. And we know that men with high levels of sperm DNA damage 
take longer to get their partners pregnant naturally or with some fertility treatment. So, you know, for the younger couples who've been trying for a fair amount of time without any other cause, that tends to be a, a first line test for me now. But I don't want to find out after four IVF cycles that there's a problem that we could have done something about at the start. But in essence, it's a diagnosis. And as James alluded to, we're talking more about that sperm DNA test in next week's episode. But for now, in terms of then couples managing this diagnosis, what kind of advice do you give? I, I think it's the reassurance that regardless of that, you know, the, the long-term prognosis or the long-term chance of couples or individuals achieving a family is still very good. Um, it doesn't mean because we haven't identified a problem that we can't necessarily achieve success because it may be whatever the intrinsic problem is, if, if there is one, you know, we, we will overcome that with IVF, with the number of eggs we collect, with the processing of the eggs, with the bypassing some of the steps you have to overcome. It may be that some couples have got an intrinsic problem with the sperm being able to fertilize eggs and will never be able to identify that. The test is something we only identify when they come through for treatment. And I think the, the other thing I try and do is is actually just help people understand how inefficient a species that we are. You know, even, even at 30, only about 70 to 80% of couples will get pregnant in a year. And that's only about, if you do the maths, and quite sad, I, I did one night, that's about 10, 11% per month. So at 35, it's 8 or 9% per month. At 40, it's 4 or 5% per month. So it's not an absolute surprise with so many things having to happen to get you pregnant that we don't get pregnant every month. And it's just, it's sometimes it's just showing people that's, that data and say, look, maybe you've been really unlucky and it hasn't happened yet. And that is so frustrating for them, isn't it? Because when they want to have a baby, they want a baby yesterday, not in a month, two months, not six months, 12 months. And it's managing that expectation, isn't it? It, it, it is. And, and that's when the conversation then happens. Okay. You know, I, I think I said it to you before. I'll always say, look, this is what your chances is roughly now, trying naturally, dependent on how old you are and how long you've been trying. This is the chance of success with plan B, IUISA. This is the plan of success with plan C, IVF. And, and inevitably, what I'll say is, look, if you could press the pause button on your age, the chances are, if you keep trying enough, you'll get pregnant naturally. The problem is you can't. So at some point, you've got to move on to plan B because the success rate of plan B goes down the longer you try. And it's really the decision how long before you move on to plan B. And that's going to be dependent on, on, on someone's age, and also personal choice. Some people will be trying a short amount of time and will just say, look, I want to do what's going to give me the best chance of having a family. Some people will be trying longer and will be quite keen to avoid the invasiveness of IVF. So it's just having that conversation and giving people the information to empower them to make the decision that's right for them. Exactly. And that's hopefully what this explanation has done. And you're now going to hear Jen talking about her experience of it and how she's coped with it. Because I think it's really interesting if you are going through it, hearing somebody else's experience of how how they've been coping. So James, thank you as always. Wow. So this is really exciting because Kate and I are together mm-hmm. and in the same room. We're in the same room and we might sound a bit different because we're not using the normal setup, but we seized the opportunity to have a chat with the lovely Jen, who is part of our community, because we put a call out during our brew too, talking about unexplained infertility as an ask really if, if there was someone that was willing to share their experience of it because it's so frustrating and so mm-hmm. we wanted to get get Jen on and so we're just quite overly excited because 
we're sat together and we're able to talk. And so, Jen, first of all, thank you for agreeing because this is like short notice. And yeah, like thought, five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and and Jen was like, I thought we were just having a chat, but we are having a chat. We're just and that's what it is with us. It's just a little chat. That's all it is. Exactly. Yeah. And Jen and I have met, we met, because we went out, didn't we? We actually... We did, yeah, we did. We ended up like a little impromptu meal, I think, in the end together yeah. in Altrium. Yeah, we had it because Jen is in Manchester uh, as well. And we'd met on Insta though, hadn't we? And then I was like, is anybody around? But, but what, it was probably, what, like two years ago? Yeah, I think about two years now. Mad. So yeah, just tell us where you're at. Like, feel free to just tell us about the diagnosis. You want to kind of just really understand how it's been making you feel yeah okay so how to make this not a very long-winded story at the moment we're waiting to start IVF that's where we're at right now we were referred to our IVF consultant about a year ago I think it was just before the pandemic hit so I think it was January 2020 we started seeing our IVF consultant and I've been put on metformin a while to help with PCOS symptoms, BCOS, which I was diagnosed with last year by my IVF consultant. And until then, it was unexplained. And it's still sort of unexplained in the sense that they still don't think that that's what's affecting my cycle. So mine's a bit of a complicated, confusing story. Yeah, so that's sort of where we're at right now. I'm on the metformin and trying to lose a bit of weight to start the IVF because obviously there's a BMI limit and I was slightly over that. So yeah, it's it has been quite a long-winded process. So to be honest, going back probably about 10 years, but I won't bore you with that all in one go. <laughs> so Jen, if you put aside the the PCOS side of it and you went with the unexplained. Yeah. Because a lot of ladies say to me that whilst they have that feeling of, of feeling relieved that there's actually nothing that is wrong, there's yeah. also the utter frustration because there's nothing that can be identified and therefore treated is that how you feel absolutely yeah I think even now I mean we've been trying for six years now five and a half six years I think it is every single month I mean in certain ways it gets a little bit easier in the sense that you get used to it and it becomes a way of life but then also at the same time you relive that rope that sort of roller coaster every month of thinking well there's no reason why it can't work there's nothing really wrong with either of us isn't that you know haven't found anything so why isn't this working why does it work so easily for everybody else and why not for us and every month I think that contributes to the whole hope um you build yourself up you think well actually it could happen this month some months I don't tend to think about it too much some months I am sort of resigned to the fact that we have to do IVF and that's probably what's going to work for us in the end hopefully but then other months I completely build myself up to think it might happen and then go through the whole you know two-week wait things symptom spotting the absolute crushing disappointment when my period finally comes you know and that's that's month in month out for years and it's it is very difficult yeah in terms of then talking about what's going on with your family your support network how open have you been We've been completely open. I mean, our, all our friends and family know exactly what we're going through. They know that we're waiting for IVF. They know that we've had various tests and the outcome of those tests. I'd say we've got a really good support network. And actually, we've, we're really lucky in that we have a few friends and very close friends that have been through exactly the same thing and that have now had their babies, thankfully, but they know exactly what we're going through. So that's been amazing for us to have that support. But we've also got family who 
as much as they mean well and obviously love us and want to help, we just can't really go to with it too much because it's so hard for them to really understand. It's hard for them to say things that end up being a bit unhelpful in their own way. So we are very well supported, I would say. And we do have, you know, we've got a very strong bond and we support each other. Alex is a great support for me because I think he tends to handle it a little bit better in the sense that emotionally he's sort of, well, this is what we have to do and that's fine. Whereas obviously I, you know, I think hormones contribute a lot as well. Every month I get a bit more emotional about it. But yeah, we've, everybody knows what we're going through. And I've been very open on social media about it as well, which has led to lovely friendships like meeting you and speaking to other people, complete strangers actually that have sent me messages and we've supported each other through different moments, which has been really nice. Because when we met, the other lady that met us, hadn't you two formed a bond yeah. through social? And wasn't it the first time you'd met in person when yeah. the three of us awesome. It was the first time we'd met in the flesh. We'd been talking for years. We'd met through mutual friends online, through Twitter. And then when I started posting quite openly about our struggles, I had a message from her saying, we're going through the exact same thing. Um, And in fact, she's been through an awful lot more than we're going through. They had a very complicated situation. But I'm happy to say she's now got her little baby. Oh, Um, I'm going to ask. Oh, that's good news. She's got a little girl now, a little baby girl, and they've just asked us to be guardians, actually. They're having a little naming ceremony for her at, at the end of the year. Despite being sort of on the other side of it now, she's a huge support, and she's probably the one person that I can message when I'm having those horribly sort of dark moments where you're thinking terrible things and you you feel a terrible person sometimes for thinking certain things like being envious of people announcing pregnancies etc but no she's one person did you find then that it was different with her because you had that shared experience that actually when she was successful because I know a lot of ladies then you know if they buddy up they're then worried that what happens if what that person who's also struggling the same time as them then conceives well, how does that dynamic then impact on their relationship going forward? Yeah. But did you find that because you'd had that shared understanding and that, that experience that actually then it was easier for the two of you just to continue? And she's then brilliant, obviously, offering the support. By yeah, the end of it. absolutely. That That is how I felt. And there wasn't a part of me when she was sort of starting the process of IVF. And I was thinking, you know, how is this going to feel when eventually, hopefully she sends me that message? But no, I think, and that is, that's also another side of it is it feels like an awful thing to say because you're not wishing the struggle on anyone. Mm. But when it's been so much easier for somebody else, it's so much harder to feel happy for them, yeah. which will make sense, I think, to people that are in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask, we talked about Alex and the support you've had from him. And one of the things that we've been talking a bit about, and we, we're going to have an episode talking about it in more detail, is the the role of unexplained infertility when when we're talking about the, the guy. Mm. And I'm interested as to whether there's been much conversations about Alex, what kind of tests he's had, whether you've thought more about pushing for that, you know, when you're trying to, to get some answers. How, how do you feel about that side of things? Um, to be honest, it's been a very sort of black and white thing with Alex. And I don't know whether this is the same thing with every couple and with every man, but they sort of do that one test 
a semen analysis test. And if that's okay, that's it. There's no more questions asked. And certainly with our case, there's never been, he's done the test a few times, I think, because they decided that it had been a couple of years since his last one. So they wanted to repeat it. But other than that, there's been, there's been no further investigations and no other sort of questions asked there. And do you think that's okay? Kate? No, I don't. And I'm, this is part of the things that we're talking about in our episode that's coming out soon is we're talking about the fact that there are other tests that should be done for men and particularly DNA fragmentation testing. It's not offered routinely and partly because it tends to be done more so by urologists and there's this lack of joined up working with fertility specialists and urologists. So it just doesn't get done. And we then look at the woman in isolation and with unexplained infertility, it's going to be, you know, it takes two to make a baby. So you've got every chance that actually 50% of the issue could mm. be male fertility and not mm. necessarily female fertility, but we don't look at it. And it's so frustrating. So for someone yeah. like Jen or other people listening, mm. would would you be, then be saying, so it, it might be worth Absolutely. Asking? It's all about, I think, and certainly that's what we try and do in the podcast is to give you guys this knowledge so that you can then go forward and say to your doctor, okay, I've heard about this. Could you refer me to a urologist or could I go and get some DNA fragmentation testing? Unfortunately, it's not available on the NHS. So if you want that done, you have to pay privately, but it's giving you that knowledge and information so that you can think, do you know what? Let's go and find out about this. What do you think about that, Jen? What What does that mean? I've never even heard that. No one's ever offered that. I've never even heard that term discussed. I didn't even know there was any other options for getting Alex tested in any way. Yeah, I was just, we were just sort of led to believe that there was just that one straightforward test. And if everything was okay there, then there was nothing else to investigate at all. Well, in the episode that will be coming out just after the one that we're sharing with you, we are talking with a lady called Professor Sheena Lewis, who's got 25 years kind of experience in reproductive health focusing on the men and she's behind this sperm DNA fragmentation test which is why we wanted to talk to her about it she explains a lot more about it so have a listen and obviously have Alex have a listen as well because and we've talked about it before haven't we in other yeah. episodes as well so yeah it's definitely worth having a listen seeing what you think and making decision as to whether this would be something that you'd want to look at and I think if you're listening to this it's part of the conversation that we want to be in- included with this unexplained piece because do you feel Jen I mean you've just pretty much summed it up the, the the emphasis was pretty much all on you and they found this PCOS link and so that's been the focus now but like you yeah. say Alex has pretty much been just carry on as normal yeah absolutely yeah I think the tests have obviously very much centered on me and thankfully most of those 90% of those have been fine apart from this one blood test that they did which showed I had slightly raised androgen levels which they've now put together with certain other symptoms I have and just said it's it's PCOS that's what's probably causing it they sent me off with Clomid as well at one point they actually um when I was under the um, endocrinologist a while ago they sent me off with Clomid and said I'd have to get it from my GP so I just they signed me off went to my GP tried Clomid Obviously, it didn't work for us, but I was not I wasn't monitored at all. And when I started on Clomid, I started reading up a lot on online and there was lots of women saying they'd started on Clomid and then they were getting a scan to see how they were responding to it and then whether it was worth pursuing it or not. I never had any of that. I did query it, but I was just told, no, you what you you aren't getting monitored. Basically, you just on it and try it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So that's another thing. I feel like across the board, 
it very much depends on who your consultant is and who you're under as to what sort of care you get. It doesn't seem to be a complete routine set of criteria that is stuck to for everybody. And that that was quite confusing and worrying for me at the time. And Jen, I think there's the whole thing, you know, if you didn't respond to Clomid, did they increase your dose? Also, did they offer you letrozole? Because that works better with women with PCOS. So there's all these things that are actually really important to advocate for yourself for and to go back and say, what about this? What about this? But it's having the confidence to do that because when you're sat in front of a doctor, it's really difficult to actually ask those questions, isn't it? Of course. And also you're trusting that, you know, they're going through everything you hope with a fine tooth comb and that if there's anything that flags up, you would hope that they are the ones that are going to suggest all this stuff to you. You don't necessarily think that you have to go and be that detailed in your, your medical research yourself. Obviously, if you're living it, you are doing quite a lot of research and you are immersing yourself in it quite a lot. But obviously, there's things you miss. And if you don't have a medical background, you just won't necessarily know that these things are available. Well, and also, like you say, that's not your background. You're going trusting this person to be guiding and supporting you. Ultimately, that's why we you know, continue to do the chats that we do on the podcast. Because it give, if it gives you one other question to ask, then... Yeah. Oh, you just missed it. Sorry. It just came up. Fertility podcast tweeted. I was like, "What the hell are you tweeting?" <laughs> the power, the power of automation. Yeah, if it gives you one more question, you know, in your arsenal, really to to ask, then it, it's helped in some way. Thank you so much for sharing and for you know being a part of the community. Yeah, thank it, you for being a loyal follower of our community and the brewer too. We and like it does that. make a difference to know that you know the stuff that we're trying to share is is helping and mm. and you know it's it's good to see that you know you're getting stuff from the community still and I know like you say lots of people will relate to to what you've said and how you've been feeling so good luck with it I mean on in terms of the the BMI issue ahead of starting treatments because we I know it's a it's a contentious one the BMI in itself isn't it because we know it's an archaic mm-hmm. measure any yeah. last thoughts how are you feeling about that um I feel okay I mean I understand that you know I think thinking about PCOS and reading into it, if that is a slight issue for me, then that is probably what's contributed to me putting weight on over the years. And despite not changing my lifestyle in any way um, whatsoever, my weight has always fluctuated quite a bit in the last 10 years. And it is helpful. And I understand that I have to be the healthiest I can be if we're going to do this completely. But it is a massive added stress and pressure on my shoulders to have to, you know, already doing lots of things to try and make myself healthier and, you know, better for conception, etc. But yeah, being told you have to lose X amount of weight before you can even start the process is is a lot to take on board. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And it's such a difficult one. And I think in time, actually, there might be some changes around the BMI side of things because we do know that it's not a fantastic indicator of, you know, how healthy you are. It's not a great measurement, but it's the only thing that currently we really have, apart from waist circumference is showing to be really useful now. But other than that, there's really nothing else. And I think, like anything, it's going to take time to change. But I do hope that we get, A, a better measurement, and actually we become a little bit more inclusive when it comes to BMI. Obviously, there are other medical reasons why we do need to be mindful of that I think you know it's not fair is it if you if you're slightly overweight because of PCOS but you're Mm. above the BMI of 30 Mm. and we're not providing you with IVF then 
And I, as I understand it, if you go private, you you only have to be under thirty five, I think it is, and that's quite a big um, a big bit of leeway there, I would mm. think. But for NHS funded, obviously, it's under thirty. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm working towards at the moment. Not far off, but again, it's just yeah. you know we think, oh, we'll start in summer, and then things happen, and then there's a pandemic, and then there's <laughs> you know various things that happen and it just makes it so much harder so and again the onus is all on you as Mm. as we were saying which is why you know maybe that that male conversation is one to explore Mm. just to see just to take the pressure off a little bit just to know that you know it isn't just on your shoulders you know how this is all panning out but good luck thank Thank you posted and thank you for sharing thank you very much and we'll see you soon yeah fantastic bye for now Oh, that was such a lovely chat with Jen. Mm. Thank you for sharing, Jen. And, you know, we are always interested in hearing your stories. We've shared lots of them in the past. And if you're going through an unusual time that you haven't heard anybody else talking about something similar, maybe you've been listening to other podcasts, maybe you've been reading blogs, you know, and you want to get in touch with us and tell us your story, then then do. You can contact us on our socials. I'm at Fertility Buddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. Now, every week we have our brew at two, which is another place that we can answer your questions. We also have Dr. James Nikopoulos, who you heard at the start, who is our resident expert. And this is a brilliant question that he's answered. It's all about the vaccine. Have a listen. Ask the expert. 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 I don't know whether I told you before, but I'm vaccinating at the weekends. And we get a lot of questions clearly about vaccination and fertility and treatment and I know we've asked you some of these before what I'm finding not only in the vaccination clinic but actually in my work currently is that women are being told different things about whether they need to delay their IVF treatment after they've had the vaccine and some of them being told to delay as long as three months before they have their treatment And that's obviously very different to the guidelines from the British Fertility Society. So I kind of wanted to ask you, what should they really be doing? And is it correct that they should be delaying that long? It's a really great question. um, And it's an important question. And it's a bit of a bugbear of mine. Because, you know, we've all seen over the last year that everybody has an opinion. And frustratingly, I think what a lot of people are hearing when they go to clinics or speak to people is somebody's personal opinion. And when you're in the, an environment within a clinical setting, people shouldn't be giving their personal opinions. They should be going with, with guidance or at least caveating anything they say if it is an opinion. So it is really hard for people. They're getting mixed messages. And there is an element of frustration as well because the, the goalposts do move, as we've all seen over the last year in many different ways, and the guidance has changed. And the guidance has changed recently because all of a sudden, women who are pregnancy age are suddenly getting to the age that are being offered vaccines. They weren't three months ago, so the guidance was very different. So the guidance did change um, a little while ago. And in essence, what the guidance says is that women who are pregnant, women are being offered the vaccine by age, and the fact that they're pregnant doesn't change that. Um, so women who are 38, who have got to the point where they're being offered a vaccine, have been pregnant, are going to be offered the vaccine. So the question then becomes, if you are vaccinated before having fertility treatment or if you're trying to get pregnant, is that going to impact on your chances of getting pregnant? Question number one. The best evidence we have is no, and I can't see physiologically why it should. So to me, it's very clear if you're having IVF tomorrow, if you're trying to get pregnant and you're offered the vaccine, have the vaccine. Question number two is, okay, if you happen to be offered the vaccine 
and you're in an IVF cycle, what do you do? Again, pretty clear it shouldn't impact on things. You know, have the vaccine. The only caveat to that is some people do get side effects for a few days after the vaccine. So it may be that if you if you're offered the vaccine the day before an egg collection or the day before an embryo transfer, sensibly for your own stress levels, you may want to defer it for a, by 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 a few bring it forward by a few days, or so you're not doing a lot at the same time and you're not feeling really grotty when you're medically having anaesthetic. But on principle, there's no reason why you can't have your vaccine during a stimulation period. Okay. Question number three becomes: What do I do if I'm pregnant, or what do I do if I'm about my first vaccine or what do I do if I'm pregnant for my second vaccine? Now, this is where it's a little bit trickier. Again, physiologically, this is not a live vaccine. So any, like any other vaccine that isn't live, it should be safe in pregnancy, just like the flu vaccine that we recommend everybody who's pregnant to have. So there should be no reason why there should be a problem with having this vaccine. There is a limited amount of data to confirm that safety. We're looking over 100,000 babies in America, uh, pregnant women rather in America that have been vaccinated without significant risk. There was a nice study recently that, that looked at several thousand women amongst the big studies that looked at the vaccine in Dremel showed no increase in risk. So I'm as confident as I can be that there isn't an increased risk of taking it in pregnancy, but I understand there is that hesitancy. Got to caveat that with the fact that there is lots of data that shows that if you get COVID in pregnancy, initially it was anecdotally, but now it's, it's, it's there that you're much more likely to end up in ITU, much more likely to need oxygen, much more likely to have a preterm labour, more likely to have a stillbirth. So having gone through what you've gone through to get pregnant, you know, for me, the risks of getting COVID in pregnancy far, far outweigh the risks of, uh, of the vaccine because, you, you know, you are immunosuppressed in pregnancy, so you are at higher risk. So that would be my take on it. And that's, that's great. That, thank you, because that's explained it, all the elements which are are important i think going back to kind of my original question was that the frustration that women are experiencing when they're, they're due to start treatment they're then being told if you have your vaccine we need to delay for three months um, I, it, it makes it, it, i have no idea why people are saying that it makes no sense people no. are either i don't know what you know i don't know what to say about that no. because because they should nobody should be saying that no, and I think that's dangerous because that's actually then stopping women having the vaccine yeah. because they don't want to delay their treatment. Yeah, absolutely. There's no advice that we can offer then if that is being said, who, how a patient can take that up with. I, you know, I, think, I think they need to go back to their clinics you know, with a copy of the government guidance and say, you know, and, and the RCOG, the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, yeah. got some guidance, the BFS have got some, a nice PDF. Um, so, you know, use that and go back to the clinic and say, where are you getting this from? Yeah, okay. Well, let's see if we can put that in the show notes as well to make it something for you to get your hands on. Thank you, James. Ask the expert. 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 So keep those questions coming in. We've got James probably in about another six weeks because we just had a good old chat with him. And um, he's so good at answering all the questions, isn't he? Mm-hmm. We, we do like bombard him. But you can email info at thefertilitypodcast.com. You can also join our closed Facebook group, which is The Fertility Podcast. Next week, we have got a really interesting chat coming up all about male fertility. And I know it's one that Kate really got stuck into because I I tasked her with writing show notes because you're off next week. You're having a little rest, aren't you? I am. So The Brew at Two, we'll let you know. It might be a watch this space. We might have a delay on that Brew at Two. But yeah, keep checking our Instas to find out if it's happening because if Kate hasn't got any signal, we ain't doing it. Thank you as always for joining us. And until the next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.